One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with the first episode of the seventh season of Akimbo. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. It's hard to believe it's been more than 100 episodes of Akimbo. They're all available. They're all free. I hope you'll go check out the backlist. Here's an interview I did with Scott Omelonic, the editor-in-chief of Inc. that aired in May of 2020. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. I'm Scott O'Malonic, Scott O, the editor-in-chief of Inc., and I'm very pleased today to have Seth Godin with us for the Inc. Real Talk series. Um, Seth Godin, welcome to Inc. Real Talk. We appreciate you joining us. So thrilling to watch all these participants coming in from around the world. People stayed up to the middle of the night, people from Chicago, New Jersey, Singapore, <laughs> and it's good to see you as well, Scott. Uh, um, I hope you're holding up okay. Thanks, Seth. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. And you? Yes, all good. That's great. So today we're going to share some things um, uh, on, on marketing, on brand building, on business, how to identify your most viable audience, which we talked about, what it takes to really make a difference um, with your work, to do work that matters, um, and why you can't be seen until you learn to see, which I'm really intrigued about. Some of the things, um, but not all of the things, I presume, um, that help build a good brand. Yeah, I mean, I think that brand is largely misunderstood. Brand is not logo. Brand is the promise that each of us make. And either you have a brand because people know what to expect from you, or you are ignored. And it doesn't matter if you're an individual, if you're running uh, a company with a million employees or anything in between, everybody is judged, judged or ignored. And so we get a choice, particularly as small business people, to show up in a way that we can be proud of. Um, and that is more difficult or less difficult at a time like this, right? So I think, um, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, but, you know, um, obviously we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We can't ignore that. Um, I hear you discuss that on, on Akimbo quite a bit, wishing people uh, be safe. Um, and it's a big, scary thing done untold damage to lives and the economy. I think there's a perception when events like this happen, basically, um, when basically we lose the narrative, right? That, that, that the, the safe story we all buy into uh, as a person, a family, a community, uh, a society, it, it creates this vast and unpredictable change. Um, and obviously it does create change in a human toll and in the economy. But it also seems like events like this actually just allow for the faster percolation of ideas that were and trends that were already out there in, in the world. Yeah, so we're in the middle of a tragedy, and it's a tragedy that's unevenly distributed, but it is widely experienced. And sometimes when people introduce me, they mention that I've started a couple uh, businesses. I've started dozens and dozens and dozens of businesses, and almost all of them failed. And every single one of them got squeezed along the way, squeezed 
by uh, cash flow issues or customer uh, traction issues or whatever was going on in the world. And one of the biggest differences that we are experiencing right now is that everyone is getting squeezed in the same way, that we are all feeling it at the same time. So small business people are no stranger to things not working the way we expect. But when it's everyone at the same time, it's easy to get paralyzed and it's hard to find a place where you can go to get back to where you want to go. But small businesses have this huge, huge advantage, which is that we are right down the street from the people we serve, that we don't have to have a meeting to decide what to do, that we don't have to do a survey or a study, that we can actually get back to the core of why we're here in the first place, which is to serve people, to make things better by making better things. So nobody wished for this to happen. And this is on average, way on average, a bad thing for almost all of us. But it's here and it's a slog. And so the question is, what will we do with it? And what will we be like on the other end of the slog? Because slogs always have another side. And it won't be back to normal when we get to the other side. It will be a new thing. But when we write the history of what you and your organization did, the question is, what will that history say? Because we get to decide that today, tomorrow, and the next day. And, and given that, uh, I, I understand how that applies to Inc., right? I, I think at Inc., it, we've been very fortunate that we already have a business that has a significant purpose, and, and that is to serve the entrepreneurial community. And we're able to do that now in ways we've never uh, had to before. And, and that's a, a, a proud moment. It's an honored moment for us to do that, right? But what about other businesses that, that maybe provide more mundane things that are, are, are less, um, you, you know, less needed every day, but the nice to have, how do these business, what if you're a commodity, right? How, how, how do you treat yourself differently? And I know we all don't want to be commodities, but the fact is someone has to make the cardboard boxes, right? Someone has to make nails. Um, how, how, how do we apply what you're talking about to that? Yeah, so this is a great place to start. Tom Peters taught me that if you make a commodity, that was your choice. Commodity is a choice. There are people who make cardboard boxes that are better cardboard boxes, and there are people who need a better cardboard box, buy their box and pay extra for it. Better might mean more durable, might mean more sizes and easier supply. It might mean uh, easier to recycle or less impact on the environment. Nobody said you had to be in a race to the bottom. And the problem with the race to the bottom is that you might win, or even worse, come in second. And that's the choice. It's a choice made by someone who's run out of other ideas. Low price is the last refuge for the incompetent marketer. That's not the way you're going to be able to do the work you seek to do. So if you make something that people neither need nor want, you should make something else. And it doesn't matter that you have sunk costs. It doesn't matter that you have a fancy machine. Whether you pay attention to that machine or not, you're still busy making something people don't want. And so that doesn't mean we need to make an emergency knee-jerk decision, but it does mean we need to get back to the first idea, the reason we started something. You don't get to say, hey, I worked really hard on this. Please don't buy from my competitors even though my competitors offer free prime overnight shipping and charge less and offer better customer support because it matters to me to buy from me. No one will listen to you. You wouldn't even listen to you. The only way 
to do work as a small business who is in a monopoly is to say, if you're the kind of person who wants what I make, I have what I make and nobody else does. And that gets back to the idea of the smallest viable audience. So, you know, you mentioned the book, This is Marketing, and I'm thrilled that it's one of my best-selling books. And what that means is that fewer than one out of 300 people in the United States bought one. Fewer than one in 300. My smallest viable audience to write the best-selling marketing book of the decade is 0.2%. So that's enough. You don't need more than that. You just need to matter to a few people. So in, in many respects, and, and by the way, I, I, I'm, I'm one of those, uh, I can't do the percentage again, but I'm one of those. Um, uh, one of the assumptions then is you really should be recalibrating uh, assumptions that the biggest numbers, the most audience, the most dollars really isn't important. So, so you're asking us to think of a very a different manner of success than we've ever thought about before, or maybe only thought about in bits and starts along the course of human history or in, uh, uh, you know, um, in a commune somewhere or something like that, right? We're, you're talking about a different kind of capitalism. Well, it's interesting because I've been reading Inc. since the very first issue. And the heroes of Inc. magazine are never people who started an obvious business and built it to enormous scale. It is always someone who started something their mother-in-law said was a stupid idea, who made it for a few people, and then made it spread. That if you think about a podcast, every single podcast that has ever launched has launched with fewer than 100 listeners. How could it not? It's only after those 100 people tell other people that it starts to spread. And so what we get to do is say, I am here to help. Who is enrolled in where I would like to go, needs what I do, and will pay money to have this problem solved. Now, in this moment, fewer people are paying less money for almost everything. But that doesn't mean no one is. I was talking to a small business owner in Ohio. He runs a business called Chef's Table. Chef's Table made a living for years and years selling 7,000 different kinds of fruits and vegetables to fancy restaurants. Like if you want purple basil that's this big, they would grow you a little tiny plot of it. And he told me that last week they got more orders in a single day than any day since they opened the business. Not one from a chef. Because what they said is there's a whole bunch of people who are used to paying X number of dollars in a restaurant. And they're going to pay half that to cook themselves dinner tonight. I'll ship it directly to them. Is business better than ever? No way. No way, because his margins are much smaller. But he just discovered with a pivot that there are people who want something that he can bring them. Whether or not that's a viable business going forward is unknown, right? The real question I'm asking people is, if you got out of your own head about where you are, your stuckness, your need, your the burning of having to pay back whatever bills you have to pay and said instead, who is it that I can help today? What story can I tell to people who trust me? Then you can go solve a problem. Now, if you don't have trust, then you're going to be inclined to go race for attention. And the problem with racing for attention is that's sort of like spamming people. Social media loves it when people race for attention because that's how they make a living. 
hit the boost button. They make a living tricking you into thinking that like means someone likes you and that friend means someone is your friend. They're not. That these intermediaries want you to race around trying to scam and hustle and hypertension. When in fact, we need to spend more time saying, who exactly am I here for? And how can I do something for them that they would miss if I didn't do it? And this can be in your existing audience. It doesn't have to be a brand new audience of people that you're doing this for. Is yeah, exactly. exactly. Or, with your dis- or with your existing capabilities and a new audience. I mean, it could be one for the other. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is uh, there are a lot of people right now who are faced with some pretty harsh business realities, right? It's scary to them. And they're wondering, how can I think long term when I have to think next week? Um, how can I think about making profit one day when I can't pay the rent Friday? Um, exactly. I, you know, for those people, that there's a little lesson in there, perhaps. Well, yeah. I mean, I forgot my magic wand at home, so I can't wave it and solve this short-term problem. But the answer to the short-term problem is not to invent a long-term that is a series of emergencies, because that is a race to the bottom. That is how you will get in trouble. That when, for example, the dot-com bubble burst and I was running a dot-com company shortly before, what we saw was that companies that took a deep breath and did something different that wasn't a short-term hustle ended up becoming companies like Google. Whereas companies like Yahoo, they kept looking for one short-term thing after another to boost their stock price are gone. And at the time when I was a VP at Yahoo, Yahoo was the internet. They had everything and they blew it because they kept thinking about how do we work this week? So I feel your pain. I have had years when I made payroll within a day every month for month after month. It's really hard. And it might be you have to walk away from some things you built. And it might be you have to walk away from some assets you treasure. But going forward, the question is, who in the community you seek to serve is the calm person, the generous person, the person who's standing up and leading? Because generous doesn't mean giving it away for free. Generous means seeing people, seeing where they are, seeing what they need, seeing what they understand and what they're uh, dreaming of. Because if you can see other people, you are giving them something precious. And often, if you've picked the right industry, they'll happily pay you for more of it. I think I want to get, get back to uh, seeing in a minute. Um, one of the things that I think we tend to forget about in, in crisis is that uh, any entrepreneur who got to a certain level, any small business that got to a certain level, the people who are here uh, listening to you today, right, um, got to where they were because they, were, they had an idea. They were resourceful. They were resilient. They knew how to overcome obstruction um, and, and roadblocking. And an and unforeseen circumstance might be a faster version of the slow motion version of that they lived through building their business. But those, still, those, those skills may still apply, right, they, they, going forward. They've, they've got exactly. something in the reservoir. Right. And, but skills are different than tactics. And, you know, so I used to be one of the preeminent book packagers in the country, but then book packaging sort of went away because the internet showed up. And I used to be one of the leaders in making CD-ROMs, but then no one bought CD-ROMs. And 
then I figured out how to do email marketing, but then lots of people started doing, I mean, it, that's the Stumpeter's creative destruction, that capitalism will always show up to commoditize whatever insight you used to have. But that doesn't change your reputation. It doesn't change your posture. And it's our reputation and our posture that open the door for us to do the next thing. So sunk costs are such an important concept. It's the, one of the like, three things you learn in business school that are actually worth remembering. Sunk costs are the money, the effort, the blood, and the sweat, and the tears you spent yesterday to hand yourself a gift for today. If you went to law school 10 years ago, that's a sunk cost. You can't un-go to law school. You have a law degree now. Okay, great. Do you want it? Because you don't have to accept the gift if you don't want it. If you hate being a lawyer, being a lawyer isn't helping you. Say to your old self, thanks for the gift. No, thanks. Don't need it. That all that stuff you did yesterday or last week or a year ago, fantastic. Thrilled that you were able to do it. It made your skills better. But if we don't want those tactics, if we don't need those tactics, we need to take a deep breath as small business people because we are not moving chips around on the table like Goldman Sachs. We're actually here to serve people. And so we have to dig in and start over. You know, I'll, I'll talk about education for one minute because even though that's not a small business mostly, they're in really big trouble because for the last 10 years, they've been poo-pooing online education, saying it's not as good as the real thing. And now they're saying to all the people who they're charging full price to, oh, by the way, it's going to be online, but now it's going to be good. And then as soon as the pandemic passes and the vaccine is here, they're going to say, oh, we were just kidding. And they're going to have to drag you back into the classroom. So when I started building Akimbo, these workshops we run, I said, well, I'm going to throw out every single one of those things that Harvard depends on. Every one of those uh, tropes and, and structures and assets that Yale has been building for hundreds of years. If I was going to start over, well, I'm certainly not just going to pump a lecture into Zoom because that's just using the internet backwards. I say, well, guess what? Connecting people to one another is what we've always wanted, but we couldn't do in New Haven, or we couldn't do in Cambridge. What if we could create a way for 2,300 entrepreneurs to connect with each other, not just you and me? And so that thinking is something you've already practiced as a small business person. You've done it at least once. That's how you beat the big guys last time. And that's what we have to do this time. Say, all right, there's a slog going on. Friday's payroll is going to be really, really hard. I'm not going to sacrifice trust to make it. Instead, I'm going to say, who around me needs to be connected? Who around me needs me to solve a problem? Who around me has resources to spend if the problem really goes away? If I can go do those things, that's a good way to spend my time. Um, does this suggest that, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about uh, tempo and, 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 and the tempo of business speeding up, the timing of business speeding up, clearly a crisis uh, does that. But does this suggest to you at all that we need to get used to as business people the idea that we'll be constantly iterative, iterative from now on, that um, we'll always be uh, not the person uh, or business we were two years ago? Well, people don't remember 1977, where you would mail someone a letter and wait a week and a half for them to write back, right? People don't remember 14 years ago when GeoCities was the cutting edge of how you would present yourself online. That you build 
uh, a business around the SEO in Google of winning for a hardware store and suddenly you stop winning and you stop winning in one day and Google won't talk to you and on and on and on. It keeps, it's been getting faster my whole life and attachment is the enemy. Attachment to an outcome, attachment to a future we haven't experienced yet. Nostalgia in reverse. Having this nostalgia for what 2021 is supposed to be like, that's just a recipe for pain. Because 2021 doesn't care about what you were hoping for. 2021 is going to come whether you want it to or not. And so since we know that, and since we know we are against, up against organizations that have hundreds of millions of dollars in public assets, or organizations that have hundreds of people, salespeople, et cetera, who are willing to go to war to maintain the past, the only way forward if you're an entrepreneur who wants to build something better is to get on the side of change, not to fight against change. Because change is the enemy of the giant company. It's your friend. Because change reshuffles the deck. And so if the hand you got dealt isn't the hand that you want, just ask for a new shuffle and start over. And I grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and uh, my late dad had a factory in uh, Buffalo, New York that my sister still runs. My mom uh, ran an independent bookstore in Buffalo. And I watched growing up, what happens when you decide to be light on your feet and to use a posture of generosity as opposed to a posture of entitlement? when you show up as an entrepreneur. Anyway, I'm ranting. Sorry, I'll try to rant. No, 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 absolutely not. Um, one other thing I understand about your Buffalo past, by the way, total side note is that you're, uh, you were a hockey player, which I- Against my wishes. I, I would never guess. Yeah, well, if you look at my nose, you can guess. It, <laughs> it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. You know, my dad came to me when I was 10 and he said, you're a nerd. and uh, we don't have to worry about whether you're going to do okay in school, but you're going to have to play a sport. And I was like, does bowling count? <laughs> and the thing is, they didn't really have Little League Baseball because it's Buffalo. So I played hockey, broke my nose, broke my arm, broke my spirit. And when I was 15, my dad said I could become a coach instead. And that was such a transformation. I was a great hockey coach at the age of 16. All the other coaches were dads. And I discovered that if I wasn't worried about people knocking me into the boards, I could actually skate and shoot pretty well. And so I've tried to create a business as a small business person where I don't compete in markets where people are going to break your nose or break your arm. Um, but was that uh, experience coaching? Did, did, is that how, uh, against the backdrop of the family of entrepreneurs, how you became who you, you yeah. are today? Little Seth growing into Big Seth? Yeah. I mean, I'm a teacher. I, I'm not, I only become an entrepreneur because I have to pay the bills, but I'm a teacher. And this idea of showing up and turning on lights for people, that's what I've been seeking to do my entire career. And if I can do it by packaging a book or do it by um, making a piece of software, that's great. But mostly what I have discovered is the generative power. And Inc. Magazine does the same thing, right? Like one good issue of Inc., doesn't just change the 10,000 subscribers who studied that article. It changes the 100,000 people those 10,000 people talk to and on and on and on. And culture is the engine of our future. 
and one good live stream with the right guest um, it does the same I think um, I think the 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 nose uh, gives you a, a, a matter of authenticity um, which actually is is something I want to talk about right in, in, in I, I think obviously authenticity matters to this equation you're trying to build but we uh, live in a world I think with two problems at least right now one is um, as important as authenticity might be, it's never been easier to fake, right? And and not just as a person, but with bots and things like that. But but at the same time, we're in this place because of the COVID crisis where um, every marketer uh, on earth um, is telling brands that now's the time to reassure your customer, your pros, your you know, tell your prospects you're there for them, um, that you're going to stand up for them trying times. This comes from a question actually from a, a man named Joe McCambly, he wants to know, like, given that, how do you actually appear authentic when the, right. the advice is the same advice everyone else is, is giving? Okay, so I got to start with a small rant. Authenticity is a crock. Authenticity is overrated. Authenticity is a trap. Because the last time you were authentic, you were three months old, lying in diapers with poop in them, crying. Ever since then, you have done things with intent. You have done things on purpose. You wake up in the morning, you don't feel like going to work, you go to work. That if we hire a professional to do surgery on our knee or paint our house, we don't want them to show up and say, I had a fight with my spouse, I'm gonna do a lousy job today. That would be authentic, not what we want. We, no, no, please fake being the best surgeon in the world today because that's what I hired and that's what I need. What people actually want from you is consistency. And the easiest way to be consistent is to do something that comes naturally to you. But you still, no one cares enough about you for you to be authentic, unless you're, you know, one of those Instagram influencers who gets points for putting on drama, right? For the rest of us, if you go to see Hamilton on Broadway when it reopens, you're certainly hoping that no one in the cast will be authentic. You want every person in the cast to give the best possible performance. So. Yes, we've seen all those companies that had too much ad money to spend running exactly the same COVID ad. If you haven't seen that video, it's hysterical. Same phrases, same typeface, same cutaways. That's just noise. Forget about that. What it means to be consistent and have empathy in a time of crisis is to allow your people to be human. And human doesn't mean that they are authentically sharing whatever's on their mind. It means that they are willing to be generous enough to see people. So my example, I am no fan of Verizon. I think Verizon is one of the worst companies in America. And no one uses them because they want to. You use them because you have to. And I had to fix uh, internet for somebody. And I dreaded the fact that after doing all my stuff, because I know a little bit about this, I couldn't do it. So I call the number, dreading the whole thing. And I get in the phone tree. And someone answers the phone. It's Sunday night at five o'clock. And I'm like ready for the hour of them abusing me and pretending. And the person on the other end says, let's just talk this through. And for the next nine minutes, he acted like a person and he engaged with me like I was a person. And in nine minutes, we solved the problem. And the beauty of this is that it took less time than it would have taken if he had to act like a cog in a system. And I think what happened in that setting is he realized two things. One, his boss was too busy to monitor every call. And two, why the hell not show up like a human? 
that, you can call that authenticity if you want. What I heard there was humanity, was a person acting like a person. And so it can be more efficient. It can be more profitable. But what we're asking for when we are feeling disrupted is simply to be seen. And a slogan doesn't make a scene. And soft music doesn't make a scene, feel seen. What makes us feel seen is that someone extended themselves. So if you have an organization, it feels to me like the opportunity is to say to your people, we stand for something. We have a commitment. We have to be consistent. But within those boundaries, please show up as people. Because now more than ever, the industrial setting is not what people want. They don't want an industrial solution to an industrial problem. They want to be seen and heard. And once again, that's the magic of small business. It, it, it um, strikes me that the, the dynamic of being a business owner has actually changed quite a bit and, and, and sort of has this echo in my mind of, of, of a caretaker. Um, and we, we know um, that there's leadership service now that people who run businesses are supposed to have, right? And uh, toward their teams, um, you're having a similar experience toward your consumer. Um, in, in, in the caretaking world, if you've ever cared for an ill uh, spouse or parent or child or something, you know, there, there's a whole lot of psychology that goes along with making sure you're, you're well on the other side of this. So is this, a, this is a, a thing that we don't talk about at all in business, but it, it actually feels like um, a much, much greater burden that a business founder has to bear. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's going to be a real... PTSD from this experience for a lot of people. Health, for sure. People who cared for somebody. People who worked themselves up into a frenzy because they want the world to be a certain way and it's not. And then something very special happens if you are a human and you hire other people. Because it's super easy to say everyone takes their own risks and everyone takes their own chances and they're on their own. But if you're like most of the entrepreneurs, I know that's not the way you treat it. You treat it really seriously. You count on people and people count on you. And I think the most productive thing we can do is forgive ourselves and say, there's a difference between doing the best you can and saving everything. Because saving everything only happens in the movies. Doing your, the best you can is up to you. If you can do the best you can, then you ought to accept whatever comes from that. And I think you will find that the people who work for you understand that, particularly if you have a history of telling them the truth and you're serious about what it means to do the best you can. Like if you take your PPP money and join a country club, that's not doing the best you can. But doing the best you can, and Simon Sinek has written about this so beautifully, involves understanding the level of commitment that you have made to your people and to the people that you serve. And what we need is resilience, the resilience to have the flexibility to be here tomorrow. And that probably means you can't be exactly like you were last week. It probably means um, that you can't own all of those branches of your taco shop in Boston, that some of them are going to have to close so that other ones can persist into the future. And none of it's easy. But if this was easy, everyone would do it, right? Like at the placement office in college, there isn't the line for entrepreneurship. There's a line for, can I get a job at a famous company? Because that's easy. This is hard. Yeah. 
I, um, I teach a class on entrepreneurship and of uh, about 40 students and 38 of them go to work as consultants at, at big companies when they graduate. Um, but what you're talking about um, requires a lot of maturity, right? And um, someone in the audience, Kupa Kush, asked this question, um, young person in the startup arena saying, doing work that matters, having some of the points of view you've just articulated, um, uh, against what we believe to be sort of the, the you know, the public perception of who a, a young startup person is or a founder is. Actually, maybe those folks aren't as well equipped as we think they are to, to actually find what matters. Do you have to live a little bit more of life to have that view and that success? So the media, and Inc. is not, uh, the prime offender, but every once in a while is yes, seduced absolutely. by this, uh, loves to tell the Silicon Valley story. And I have spent a lot of time with many of those people. I sort of, sort of was one of those people for a while. And they're afraid. And one of the things that they're afraid of is that they don't, that they're going to get caught for not really knowing. That if you have a detailed marketing conversation with the most senior people at like Google, Facebook, all of them, they don't know. They're just lucky. They just got lucky in one respect or two respects. And software lets them scale to a billion, right? And there are much smarter marketers in, this, in you know, the, the local steel mill than there are in Silicon Valley. But they had software as the wind at their back. And so it's easy to try to say, well, the way I'm going to model becoming Apple is I'm going to become a jerk like Steve Jobs was. But Steve Jobs wasn't successful because he was a jerk. He was successful and he was a jerk. They weren't related. And so what we have is the chance to say that capitalism gives us leverage. Capitalism is a lever that lets us find a group of people and bring resources to them to solve a problem. But the best way to do this work that matters is with practical empathy. Realizing the people you serve aren't you. They don't know what you want. They don't need what you need. They don't believe what you believe. And that's okay. But you've got to go to the, and that's okay part before you can actually serve them. And so the obligation and the challenge is picking your audience and being willing to dismiss everybody else. So if you're a stand-up comic and your agent books you to do a gig and you bomb, and then you find out it's because everyone in the audience only spoke Italian, it's not your fault. You were just in the wrong room. And too often, small business people think they're just like big businesses, but smaller. Not true. We're just more specific. We get the privilege of picking who exactly are we seeking to serve. So on the Lower East Side of Manhattan, there's an eyeglass store. That's where these came from. And lots and lots of people need eyeglasses but almost nobody needs eyeglasses from Fabulous Franny's because to go there is not like going to a normal eyeglass store. The eyeglasses are different. They fit different. The pricing is different. The service is a bit different. All of it is different. And they can tell like that if the wrong person walks in. If the wrong person walks in, they don't pretend there's no other place in Manhattan to buy eyeglasses. They say there's a place over there and a place over there and a place over there. Good luck to you. But if the right person walks in, their eyes light up and they say, I've been looking for you for years. That's what it means to have a small business. To show up in the right place for the right people with the right story, with the 
practical empathy to say, I made this for you. And they say, I've been waiting for someone to make this for me. Thank you. Um, uh, that, 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 that's powerful. And, and yet I can't help but think um, uh, what, what, what Lakshmi, another person from our audience, says is that I'm a, I'm, I'm a total marketing skeptic. And when, when individuals get to determine um, what they want, which I actually think is a good thing, not, not a bad thing, right? But when individuals get to determine what they want um, and can determine a business's value, um, how does marketing actually, which should have a central task or used to have a central task of uh, inventing demand, um, how does it stay relevant? And I guess what you're saying is it, it, it's not. Traditional marketing is, is not relevant to the world you speak about at all now. Well, you're, you're pressing a hot button for me because you're using the word marketing. So <laughs> let, let's, let's use the word advertising instead. Okay. You are correct. Traditional advertising is about making average stuff for average people and shouting about it enough that the masses in the middle decide they need it that the late Jay Levinson, who was a friend of mine, we wrote many books together, uh, was one of, he was shame, ashamed to note that he was one of the inventors of the Marlboro Man. And he was in a cab one day, and um, if you're under 50, you won't get the punchline of this story, but I'll explain it. He was in a cab one day, and the, uh, the cab driver said, what are you doing? Jay says, I make advertising. And the cab driver says, oh, so you're in the ad game, huh? And Jay says, I guess. He says, well, advertising's might work on some people, but it doesn't work on me. And Jay said, really, what kind of toothpaste do you use? And the cab driver said, well, I use Gleam, but that's only because I can't brush after every meal, which was Gleam's slogan, right? So the point is, all toothpaste was the same in 1980, but he bought this because of the ads. I don't like advertising. I'm not good at advertising. I don't write about advertising. I think advertising is from the 60s. Marketing is not that. Marketing is what you make, how you make it, the story you tell. The Catholic Church does marketing. Your local nonprofit does marketing. If you want to get people to take their tuberculosis medicine, you need to do marketing. That, that you know, the, the, the global climate challenge is not a technology challenge, nor is it a science challenge. It is a marketing challenge. We have done a bad job of helping people understand their choices. That's what marketers do. We show up, we tell a story that's true to the people who need to hear it. And if we're right, they'll say thank you. That's what marketing is. Um, I think that's a much more holistic uh, way of, of looking at the world. And in fact, it makes marketing almost everything, right? I mean, um, your nose and your glasses are, are sort of part of your marketing, I suppose. Um, with it being everything, right, um, or, or so many things, um, it seems like that the that uh, there's never a time to stop it. And in fact, it seems like a lifelong pursuit um, that, as, as a business owner, um, and this somewhat corresponds to sort of I think your worldview with Akimbo is that. Um, this trip you're on as a marketer, one is on as a marketer. The trip one is on as a small business owner. Um, is a, a lifelong one and it's continually uh, evolving and we just have to be uh, comfortable with that and and maybe um, we set ourselves up for that by understanding it and being comfortable with it 
Yeah, you know, if you, there's so many analogies for surfing, but uh, one of them is, oh, no, I have to go surfing today. No one says that. I get to go surfing. Number two is uh, I want every wave to be exactly the same. No one says that. That the entire point of surfing is that the next wave is going to be different. That's why it's interesting. That's why people do it. So it is entirely appropriate if that's your goal to go work for a 1965 industrial entity where you will keep the same job gradually for 40 years and you, you're in, you made it, and now you don't have to worry. But those days are largely gone. And for small business, they've always been gone. That what it means to be a small business is there's going to be a different wave tomorrow and that's good. It's what you signed up for. It's a craft. It's our art. And you know, the, the thing that's always been fascinating about Inc. as a magazine is if all it was supposed to be were, here are the 40 principles, it should have been a book. No, it's a magazine because small business is a fashion. It's a fashion. It's a hobby. It's an avocation. It's a passion. And that's one of the things that keeps it moving forward, that there's interesting problems to solve, and we get to solve them, and we get to use the best tools in the world to do so. That back when I started as an entrepreneur in 1974, I didn't have access to any tools. Now I have the same laptop as the fanciest corporations in the world. Even Stephen, you can reach a billion people if they want to hear from you. Even Stephen, what an extraordinary opportunity to solve this problem that's in front of us. So that is fundamentally different, but it's interesting for me. I, I stumbled upon an interview you did about 20 years ago um, with a magazine called Chief Marketer. Um, it's when you were at Yo-Yo Dine, and it was one of the first, uh, I know it's hard for people to even comprehend some of this uh, now, but it was one of the first big e-commerce pushes uh, that existed. Um, maybe it's filtering back through your memory now, I'm, I'm not sure, but... Uh, a couple of things you said that I, I found really fascinating because they held up, right? Um, interest is the core of what we do. Um, uh, there's a distinction between what marketers, and here I'm thinking we're actually referring more to advertisers than marketers, uh, think is okay and what consumers think is okay. Um, we've got to establish a dialogue between buyer and seller. We have to create relationships with customers over a period of time establishing not just who they are, but what they want, and always being careful to treat different customers differently. We must be voluntary and built around permission. Some of these things you just said to me this week, um, it, uh, <laughs> how'd that happen in such a changing world? Well, like, what, are, what, are, what is the core there that makes this still make sense? And how did you figure it out? Uh. How did I figure it out? Uh, I was a difficult student, and um, I didn't want to just take what was on offer. So I had a really, really good first boss after business school, and he gave me way too much responsibility for a 23-year-old. And so I spent millions of dollars of somebody else's money doing marketing, making stuff. And I saw the fork in the road, you know, People Magazine calling you up and saying, do you want to go to the US Open? We'll take you because you're going to buy more ads. And I saw what happens when people rationalize their race to the bottom and they rationalize their shortcuts and they rationalize their hype because they got to 
pay their bills or they're just doing their job. And one of the things I learned, I learned so many things from my parents, but what I learned from them is it's never just doing your job. You are what you do. And I wanted to be able to say that. And every time I got, you know, inventing email marketing was a big deal in the 1980s, early 1990s. And one time I went to a Usenet news group and I said, how does this spam thing work? And I spammed a chess discussion board with an ad. And I apologized to those 5,000 chess players who saw my ad in the Usenet discussion. And I felt terrible. I still feel terrible 30 years later because I want to put my name on the work. And the thing is, anyone who's on this call is talented enough to do something that will help someone else enough that they will pay for it. There is no excuse for marketing cigarettes or the equivalent. So don't. Go do something you can be proud of. Um, so that's the core of, of, of who you are and how you came to be. What, what's something that, say, you used to believe five years ago, this is a question, anonymous question. I don't know why it's anonymous because I think it's a great one. What is something you believe five years ago that, that, that doesn't apply anymore? Uh, I was significantly too optimistic about the democratizing power of giving everyone a microphone. I didn't realize that the dark patterns of social media and outside well-funded influencers would corrupt the entire ecosystem and turn us against each other. I was just completely wrong about that. And you know, if you, if you look at Tribes, a book I'm super proud of, it's missing the chapter all about the evil tribes that will seek to divide us. And when you think about it, giving everybody a microphone, you, the dumbest person, the meanest person you knew in high school also has a microphone. It's a challenge. Letting those people be anonymous at the same time, double challenge. And I think if I had realized this 10 years ago, I don't know what I would have done differently because I like being an optimist. I am still optimistic that voices of reason and care will regain the upper hand, but I think we're going to have to put in a whole bunch of filters, software and personal, because the ideas we spread are the ideas we live with. And we have been corrupted by social media, by the race for attention into spreading ideas that we'd rather not live with. And if I could fix that in one day, I would. All I can do is contribute every day a little bit. But that, I think, is the challenge for our times going forward, is we organize the entire human race, and we're responding by throwing tomatoes at each other. Um, it, it, is, it is sobering. You're not the uh, only person, I think, that, that that took by surprise, of course. Is there a way that um, the techniques you're familiar with, is, is there a way to, to use marketing to change how, how we're engaging with each other in this fashion, to be more aware of sock puppet accounts and confirmation bias and all of those things? I think the most important part that I can think of in my life's work is teaching the good guys how to do it better, right? That I wrote a blog post 11 years ago uh, about why global warming is a really stupid name for what we're dealing with. Because global is good and warming is good and uh, you were just hoping everyone would applaud. Well, no, it's atmosphere cancer. And we have to figure out the status roles and the tribal roles and the, uh, how people are 
dominating and affiliating with each other to market it well. That when we think about things that have been pushed on our culture that we didn't really want, in general, they were marketed really well. And too often, people who are on the side of rational truth say, oh, here's the science, read the spreadsheet. It's obvious. No, it's going to need more than that. It's going to need a story. It's going to need an understanding of the smallest viable audience that will spread. It's going to need guardrails and levers to enable good ideas to move forward. And too often, the people who are in service of making things better turn up their nose at doing the hard work of telling a good story about it. And I don't think that's a good idea. I think it makes way more sense to uh, dig in and say, yeah, everyone didn't get the joke the first time I told it. So I'm going to have to figure out how to put the hard work in to get them to get the joke. And, and unfortunately, we live in a world where it, it seems that, you know, uh, and uh, I'm not going to say Inc. is responsible for this, but, but um, where we make overnight successes that, you know, we show overnight successes that have taken decades to occur, right? That the hard work, um, you toiled in traditional marketing before uh, you became the, the teacher you are uh, now. Um, it, it, it does take time. It takes time and it takes failure over and over again. You know, you get in the Hall of Fame by uh, hitting a baseball three out of 10 times. And somehow we believe, because we come from an industrial background, that three out of 10 is a disaster. It's not. We're making art. We don't know the answer. At the same time, you don't have to be original. If there's someone in Cleveland who's running something that's working and you're in Topeka, copy it. Just do it. Make it better for people over there. That's what they do in medicine all the time. That if you're here to serve, it's okay that it wasn't your idea. Because that's not the hard part. The hard part is showing up, finding the audience, earning trust, and then repeating when it doesn't work. And if you're the kind of person that's reading ink that stuck out a call like this for an hour that is leaning into this, you already know that. And I'm just telling you something you already know, which is that if you are persisting in the right direction, you'll get through the dip. Because the dip is there to keep other people out. But once you see it, you realize there is another side. And this slog, this health slog, this economic slog, it will end. There's no doubt about it. And on the other side, the world is going to feel very different. A, a bunch of cruft is going to be cleaned out. We're refactoring the code. So write the new code. That's what we need you to do is to write the new code. How, as a teacher, do you keep yourself learning all of the time? Um, how, what, what is that? Just born with curiosity? Know what's necessary to continue? I have a method. I'm happy to tell people the method. Uh, if something is working in the world and I can't explain why, I need to figure out why. Because there should be nothing in our culture that is working that is unexplainable. And that is the spark. Why are people waiting in line to buy this overpriced t-shirt? What is it about that? Why did people vote this way or that way? Why do people uh, sign up for some? Why do people stay in a relationship uh, that isn't sustaining them? And on and on and on. There, if you can ask yourself that question, it's happening. It's clearly right in front of me. It's happening. Why? Well, your explanation isn't going to be right but it can be an assertion, and then you can test the assertion. 
And so what I do when I'm doing uh, my content work is telling people something they might already know, but explaining it to them in a way that they can explain it to somebody else. Because if we start to understand the why, then we can make things better because we understand the mechanics of it. I trained as a mechanical engineer in college, and there's no room for placebos when you're designing a bridge. Either the bridge stands up or it doesn't. We don't care how hard you worked on it. We need to understand the structure. I think there's a structure to how human beings make decisions and a structure into what we believe and what we want. And we're just peeling away the layers and getting to the structure. Because once you see the structure, then you might be able to make it better. Um, I, I think... I think that optimism um, is great, and it's reflecting in the audience. By the way, I just saw a comment that requested you, you run for the presidency in 2024. I am not that dumb, but that's very kind of them. Just saying that that's out there as an option um, um, for you if, if you want it. Uh, one last question I think I have personally uh, that I just, I, I'm wondering, what, what is Seth Godin like in the store himself? Like, you know, knowing all the tricks, knowing all the manipulations and, and authentic manipulations, they're, they're still, right? Like, um, what's it like to walk down the aisle of the Whole Foods with you pushing a shopping cart? There are definitely people who are annoyed by it. Um, <laughs> because I love placebos. I do. Placebos, not just medical ones, even like, I, I gladly pay $5 for an energy beverage of some sort or another. Placebos, you can't overdose on them. They're reasonably priced. They usually work if you believe. And what I'll do is I'll point out to somebody the placebo, and they hate that because they think if I point it out, I've just taken away its power. Actually, I'm honoring its power by saying that's a really well-done placebo. And so we know, pick any item, why uh, you paid extra for it and why you think it tastes better or makes you happier or you think is more nutritious, et cetera. Like nutritional yeast, what a great product. It's not nutritional at all, but it makes you feel better if you're the kind of person that wants to eat that product. And so I'm happy to point that out to anybody. If I, and I can't wait till the next time I'm in a store living near New York, that's been a while. Um, but on the other hand, I sort of miss the mystery. Uh, one of the things that I do for fun is um, buy but don't perform magic tricks. And uh, Penguin Magic is my source. And the beauty of Penguin Magic is you can't find out how a trick is done unless you buy it. So they're doing great. But um, I have not been blown away by a magician the way I would like to be in a long time because I know how the trick is done. So that was, that's the price. The price of understanding the system and the process is you have to give up a little bit of that wide-eyed wonder of imagining that it's all being done by elves who come into the cobbler's shop at night when no one is looking. So where do you find your joy? I find my joy uh, in the work that the people who learn something from me are doing. I find my joy in nonprofit leaders like uh, Jacqueline or Scott. I find my joy in entrepreneurs who overcome odds for the right reasons and make things better. I love holding a, be you know, a beautifully manufactured, reasonably priced item that was impossible years ago. Um, I love seeing underdogs destroy monopolists. That gives me enormous amounts of pleasure. 
And every once in a while, a funny movie comes along, and that'll last me for a long time. But they, have you noticed they don't make them like they used to? I need like Monty Python. We need Monty Python back again. Um, Seth, thank you so much for being with us today. I think uh, you actually not only brought joy to a whole bunch of folks, but enormous uh, sense of optimism. Um, I'd recommend everyone read This Is Marketing if they haven't. It's sort of the the summation of everything he's done. Uh, the Alt MBA and the Akimbo workshops and the Akimbo podcast are all things I'm familiar with and a firm believer of. Uh, Seth Godin, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it on Inc's uh, Real Talk. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As always, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this interview or any previous episode, just visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Hey, Seth. Brendan calling in from Montreal, Canada. I had a quick question related to your Finite Infinite Games podcast episode. When we play a finite game, it's much easier, I found, to be more productive. If I'm trying to get into an elite school or trying to get into professional sports, even if most of us lose the game, the carrot on the stick is so tangible that we want to pursue it anyways. But how can we be more productive playing an infinite game where the goalpost is so vague in nature, like starting a creative project or just really taking care of our family that you alluded to in the episode? Hope you're well, and thank you so much for taking the time. All the best. This is a great question. Well stated. Here's the thing. If the infinite game is so productive, if it is so human, if it is the way forward, then why isn't everything an infinite game? Well, you've just touched on the answer. It's way easier in our existing culture to motivate people to play a finite game. It's much more straightforward to keep score, to have winners and losers, to celebrate the person who beats the other one, to have a time limit, to have deadlines, to measure this easily measured thing called productivity instead of this difficult to measure stuff like worth or value or resilience. And so it leads to over-leverage. It leads to brittleness. It leads to short-term thinking. That is exactly the problem. The problem is that the infinite game doesn't lend itself to all of the short-term, easy, clever hacks that got us into this mess in the first place. So rather than asking the question, how do we become more productive? How do we measure the infinite game by finite game measurement, it might be more interesting to say, how do we appropriately measure the finite game with infinite game measurement? Here's one example to get us started. Before 1950 or 60, there was very little done in the way of calculating the cost of pollution. That if people died because the stuff downstream from the factory was poisonous, well, they did. We didn't really have a way to measure it. And beginning in the 1960s, and then with the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S., we began to measure it. 
we started figuring out what price are we willing to pay as a culture to avoid birth defects, to avoid people burning to death because their clothes are flammable, and on and on. And so we end up calculating using finite game numbers, infinite game costs, that what we're actually doing is playing an honest finite game. We're bringing the numbers forward. And we see this with enlightened organizations in the way they choose to manage and lead and compensate their people. That in the short run, it certainly pays to have indentured servants working 18 hours a day under constant supervision, cranking it out until they burn or break, and then go get some more. But organizations that are willing to take a longer-term view have understood that they can get more of what they actually seek by playing an infinite game instead. So what we've got to do, I believe, is use these tools. We've honed them to a very sharp point. Use these finite game tools, but more accurately report exactly what they cost. More accurately report what productivity truly means. What does it mean to make something that we can use six times instead of one? What does it mean to have to live in a world where all the fish died because we dumped stuff into the water, but we forgot to count that into the price of the stuff we were making in the first place? So as we enter a carbon generation, as we enter a moment when we're going to start thinking about the repercussions of the finite game, it's on us to discover ways to find the pricing and build it in to the cost of whatever it is we're making. Thanks for listening to my rant. Thanks for doing something about it. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.